Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, your favorite podcast that explores the history of the Bible. Um, today, we are talking kings in ancient Israel because there's kingly stuff about to go down in the UK, right, Helen? What's what's about to happen? Yeah, this, that's right. This is our coronation special um, aimed <laughs> to coincide with the coronation of King Charles III. So it's all very exciting. Yes, even over here in the colonies, we still pay <laughs> Probably attention. Probably more so. <laughs> <laughs> even more so. I don't know. People are fascinated with the royal family. But this is one of those moments that, that seems to have real weight, whether or not you put much credence in, in, the, uh, in the royalty anymore. What we're going to see from our conversation today is that what's going to go down on May 6th has so many elements that, that were drawn directly from the way that ancient kings were were anointed and and crowned in uh in in ancient Israel. And so it's amazing, who we isn't it? who are we talking to today? This is a this is a friend of yours. Yeah, we've got a real expert on kingship, so very exciting. Uh it's Dr. Madhavi Nevada, who's lecturer in Old Testament or Hebrew Bible at the University of St Andrews. Awesome. Yeah, Madhavi has has written a ton about about the concept of of kingship um and as she will explain to us you know you could kind of pick different parts of the hebrew bible and get different impressions upon about you know who kings were and what their role was in in the ancient world so let's uh let's get to our conversation with madavi nevada about kingship in ancient israel It's great to have you here for the podcast. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you for spending the afternoon with me. Oh, well, we're very excited to be talking about um, Israelite kings. So before we get down to the kings in the Hebrew Bible, though, um, can you tell us something about, you know, the the neighboring cultures and um, the texts from places like Egypt? So how how do they see their kings? Yeah, so... um, Kingship was a root metaphor in the ancient Near East, and every culture from whom we have texts um, have texts about kings, uh, and <laughs> so that that is simply simply the norm. And there is a basic symbiotic relationship between gods and kings, which were usually expressed in like filial language: fathers, sons, mm. um, sometimes fathers and daughters, Ooh. sometimes um, mothers and sons, um, and and so there was a very close relationship there, and. And basically, kings were expected to act as mediators and as protectors. And so they were idealized as warriors and occult patrons, as well as guardians of the realm, judges, shepherds, sources of law. Um, And so that was kind of the basic expectation. Sometimes we refer to it as kingship ideology, but I think it's better to speak of it as kind of kingship theology. and so, but, so is this, the Israelite kings are different to that then, or or how how do they compare? Yeah, um, so I I think it's um, it's a complex issue, uh, insofar as you know those those aspects of kingship theology. I think there are texts in the Hebrew Bible, in the Psalms, in the various prophets, in the historical narratives, which pay witness to all of those aspects: king as warrior, king as mm-hmm. cult patron, king as guardian of the realm. 
Um, and indeed, even um, something like Psalm 2, which says, you know, today I have begotten you, right? It talks about the, the sonship of the king. Hmm. Um, and so that's clearly at play in, in um, ancient, well, ancient Israelite theology as well. And I suppose the, the real issue or one of the issues on which people have made the biggest distinction is on the question of the divinity of the king, mm-hmm. whether the king in ancient Israel was a god or not. Um, and and that's, a, that's a point where scholars have tended to draw a line, though I'm not always sure it's um, an entirely fair line. <laughs> so, so these surrounding cultures, they're, they're actually thinking of their king as a god. Yeah. So again, I think there is variation from culture to culture. Egypt is not Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia isn't ancient mm-hmm. Anatolia, which is um, uh, modern day Turkey. Um, but I think kingship as an institution is tethered to um, divine status in all of our cultures. Pharaoh was a god. Um, in Mesopotamia, it says that kingship descended from heaven. Um, and the idiom for royal death in ancient Anatolia is to become a god. You know, oh, So you can see this yeah. kind of matrix of mm-hmm. language around kingship. Mm-hmm. And by and large, in the Hebrew Bible, we don't see that. Um, but, but there are hints of it. Um, uh, it's Well, we've just passed Easter, but coming back to a Christmas text in Isaiah 9, where we talk about... Um, uh, the coming king is a prince of peace and a wonderful counselor. He's also called a mighty warrior, mm. as it's translated. But in Hebrew, it's El Gibor, which is El is the word for a god. Mm. So a, a, a mighty god. Um, and and indeed, you know, in something like Psalm 45, which is just one of my favorite psalms, it's a psalm kind of extolling um, the, really kind of the good looks of the king. Um, they, they referred to him as an Elohim, which again is that generic Hebrew term for God. Mm. Um, now, that's not to say that uh, he was a sky god or a high god, but there are instances in Hebrew Bible where we see some of that theology come out, um, which I don't think is um, necessarily the exception, um, but it's a, a theological stance that has by and large been dampened down in the Hebrew Bible itself. Hmm. I mean, I I can't help but wonder, you know, how much does that have to do with, you know, monotheism? Obviously, we we, we talk about ancient Israel as maybe the first you know, monotheistic culture. So would it be problematic to have a God King if, if you only have one God King and and he's Yahweh, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I I think we have to have those two conversations uh, alongside one another. And, um, a lot of the work that's done in the Hebrew Bible to, um, let's say, destabilize that royal theology that we've been talking about, I think happens in tandem with exactly the same conversations that are being had about um, making an argument for only one God. But I think what's interesting to to your point, Dave, is that if you're right, um, that means that the Israelite king must have been more than a you or a me, right? If it becomes part of the polemic for monotheism or an effect of the results of monotheism, um, then it must have meant that before monotheism becomes norm, and we we know that that's a process that takes place mm. while the Hebrew Bible is being written. You know, it's the first explicit mention is in Second Isaiah. You know, so we're talking, you know, the end of the sixth century. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, it means that you know before that 
thought, you know, it 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 was possible um, to talk, albeit you know, cautiously and with a you know a bit of salt, <laughs> uh, about the the kind of the divine quality uh, of of this royal figure. And I think to one extent or another, and here I don't want to kind of have a Jeremiah or get on my soap stand, um, but I think it's probably our um, our inflexibility and understandings of divinity that make this a difficult com- concept for us mm. rather than their own. Um, they, they have extremely complex and varied ways of understanding the degrees of divinity, and, and we are to be frank, quite blunt in our understanding of that um, <clears throat> in the ancient world, and I think probably um, even in the in the in the centuries leading up to Jesus as well. But I've always thought it makes sense, really, to think. I mean, you can imagine quite easily how ancient people thought of the king as a god, because I mean, he he's this remote character. He's entirely, you know, in, he's all powerful. He has. Light power of life and death. I mean, so many things are very similar to to God. So you know, why would you not? In this, in the same way that later on, you know, Alexander the Great and the Eastern ruler cult, it's it's exactly the same process, isn't it? That's exactly right. And the next time you have your nose in proverbs, uh, just you know, <laughs> keep an eye out for the way that it talks about the human king. You know, it says, you know, avoid the wrath of God and the king. Uh-huh. You know, it's such a royal text, and that makes sense. We we think that actually large portions of the middle bits of Proverbs just come from the royal court. Um, probably not Proverbs 1 to 8, which has a more kind of um, Hellenistic philosophical bent, but it's very interesting. So you're absolutely right. I mean, um, if gods and kings ruled in tandem with one another, um, then the the closest human model for a god was king, you know. <laughs> um and you know, of course, the very, the very famous, um, you know, saying if if um, you know, if cows had gods, they'd look like cows. Um, you know, I think we can say, you know, if kings had gods, they'd look like kings, mm-hmm. and that's that's exactly that's exactly what they did. Yeah, well, so yeah, you're you're, you're using that. Uh, we, I mean, we we use that language. The Bible uses that language. Talks about God as you know, king, right? So does that give us a clue that kings came before? god in that sense like there, like you were saying that it wasn't necessarily monotheistic from from the get-go or anyway does, does that give us an idea of of god as as being described in very human terms as something that was already understood yeah uh, I- Absolutely, because we need to be able to relate to our yeah. gods, right? And um, the the more abstract a god becomes, the the harder it is to follow him or her, right? You know, and then you need angels mm-hmm. <laughs> and saints and things, you know, or, or or other gods to kind of fill in that gap. Um, but I I think you're absolutely right that you know if you look at the descriptions that are ascribed to God in the Hebrew Bible, um, it is a wonderful kind of map of how our writers conceived of important ideas and um, notions of sovereignty or how social interactions took place. And um, and so I think the kingship of God is just a, is a given, mm. um, regardless of, uh, of whether we're talking about Yahweh as a second generation storm god who comes to power by virtue of uh, fighting a chaos monster, or whether we're talking about, you know, um, the, the god of uh, Genesis 1 mm. uh, verse 0. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I think the distinction that I would make, um, and this is something that I spend quite a lot of time thinking about, is you know what's the difference in saying that Yahweh is the king of the gods, 
as we see in many instances, again in the Psalms, or saying that Yahweh is the king of Israel. And those are two really different statements. Mm. Um, the first of those it, it, uh, is about as common as, you know, weeds in the ancient Near East, mm. you know, again, and every sky god was considered to be royal. Um, <clears throat> but we, we don't have any iterations of gods um, being kings over a human nation mm. elsewhere in the ancient Near East. And I think that is a, a real pivot in Hebrew Bible. That doesn't govern all of the Hebrew Bible by any means, but it certainly governs the big macro narrative structure. <clears throat> so that you have that great text in 1 Samuel 8 where um, Israel asks for a king and, you know, Samuel is grumpy because Samuel's always kind of grumpy. Uh, and God says, yeah, um, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. Hmm. It's just a huge move in the Bible. Hmm. But so, I mean, again, when we talk chronology in the Bible, it's always messy. And I, you know, I think a lot of our listeners and, and I know I was the same way you come to it like, well, they wrote they wrote Genesis first and then we just go through and this is the order that everything happens. Yeah. But you get to something like Deuteronomy, which, you know, we would know is one of the earlier books and, you know, the fifth book of the of the Torah. But there God is giving these very explicit instructions about like when you have a king. This is what he can and cannot do, um, and and it's and and God seems sort of ambivalent about even the idea of a king. He's like, well, if you're going to have one, he can't have too many horses and too many wives, and he can't do this or that. And he's very, he puts these kind of limitations on the power of the king. So I don't know. Give us. I mean, do we know much about anything about when this would have been written or or why it would have yeah. come at, at this at this point in the text? Yeah, you know, blood is shed over the dating of Deuteronomy 17. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just, or ink. I mean, either way. Right, let's you know. not get too ugly uh, on you. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but I mean, it's it's such a fantastic text, and it's mm. absolutely pivotal to a lot of these questions. And you know, it, it's our only it's our only piece of legislation about kingship in the whole Hebrew Bible. Mm. In fact, the whole Bible. Um, and as you say, if you add it up, it is it's not very good. Um. And I think it's working on a number of different levels. I mean, it's obviously evoking something of Solomon's rule, mm. um, you know, where he's said to have had a lot of horses, a lot of wives, uh, and a lot of wealth. Mm. And I think on some level, um, those texts are meant to coordinate with one another. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I'm saying I'm sitting very much on the fence about dating and <laughs> priority and various things like that. But I think they're meant to be read in relationship with one another, along with that text that we were talking about in Samuel. Um, <clears throat> I think what a lot of people now argue for is that that piece of legislation is somehow um, written um, in response to... Uh, the kind of hegemony of Assyrian imperialism mm. <clears throat> that it's written sometime, um, probably the seventh century. Uh, and that, that list of what a King can't be, he can't be a foreigner. He can't mm. have the accoutrements of royalty and instead just has to be a student of law, uh, a, a law, which incidentally doesn't allow him to do anything. <laughs> is um, on on the one hand, um, not only a legislation against this kind of classical traditional um, kingship theology that we've been talking about, but is specifically written against the notions of an emperor, um, mm. that this is a, a real stab at, at, at imperial theology. 
and you know that that that's you know all well and good um I think another way of reading the text and and this is the other side of a multi-sided <laughs> scholarly debate is that actually that that law of the king as we refer to is part of a unit of text that is largely exilic it was written in the exile hmm. or in response to the exile <clears throat> and it's purposely trying to declaw kingship right hmm. uh, or defang it um in, in an attempt to just um take the the great institution of order that had uh, previously um, ruled Israel and Judah and move it away from monarchy instead to something like Torah obedience. Hmm. Um, and so it's not so much, I mean, it is very much a historical problem, but it is much um, a, a theological move as it is um, authors, I don't know, reflecting on bad kings or right, something right. like that. Does that make sense? It does. Um, yeah. What? yeah. yeah. So Josephus talks about um, Israel's constitution being a theocracy, doesn't he? I know this is much later, yeah. the end of the first but century. But we, we have to mention Josephus in every episode. We always we always. We're get sponsored old by Josephus. Old we want to thank our sponsor, <laughs> Josephus. Josephus, so nice to see you again. <laughs> so, yeah, Josephus. <laughs> What's he got to say about it? I mean, he's got a lot to say about kings, but he talks about a theocracy. Is, is this... I mean, I guess that makes sense of a rule by God, but is is he is he coining a phrase here, or or is this? Yeah, sort of absolutely. Known? This is his phrase. Right. Um, uh, it, and we thank you, thank you, Josephus. You know, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> I will take the the cup and the sweatshirt. You know, I mean, this this is his. You know, and and in terms of his his contribution to kind of political thought, it's a huge moment. Um, and it's interesting because what he's talking about in terms of you know rule by God is this idea that um, divine law, as it has been legislated through Moses in the wilderness, is what governs the nation Israel. Um, and and, and that, that is very interesting because it, to one extent or another, has nothing to do with modern concepts of what a theocracy is, mm. which is usually um, rule by priests. Mm. And that's not what he's talking about. It's about who, who where does sovereignty lie? And for a, from a democracy, it's with the demos, right? It's with the people. And um, in a theocracy, it's with the theos. It's with God. Uh, and he is the one who decides. Um, and so I think Josephus is very interesting about that. Um, and, you know, there are, there are real questions about, you know, is that practical? Mm. And um, on a day-to-day -day level, no, it's not even remotely practical. <laughs> wildly idealistic and 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 in in that sense i don't think we can ever say that there was a theocracy in ancient israel i think we have a biblical vision of what that might look like um but it's interesting even by the time we get to deuteronomy that is not a theocracy because we have a king mm -hmm. um and and so it it is um there are a lot of different strings in this debate no and does it depend on when whether these texts were written when Israel actually had a king or, I mean, so in, in exile, there is no king because the king's been killed. The, the people have all gone away. Um, but when Josephus is writing too, there is no king. Um, you know, I mean, does, does it make a difference whether there actually is a king on the, on the throne or, or are, are you still in the realm of kind of, you know, speculation and yeah. visionary? I, I, I'm, I'm sure it does. 
Um, insofar as, you know, who's going to write something like Psalm 45 if there's no king? I mean, it just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what I will say, and I think it's important not to forget this, is that, you know, many of our prophetic texts were completed when there was no king. You know, even if we have an 8th century Isaiah, you know, we, we have 2nd Isaiah and we have 3rd Isaiah. Mm. And um, even if Jeremiah and Ezekiel began their prophetic um, ministry, a difficult term, but let's just call it that, um, you know, that, that we know that the, the books continue on be, beyond them. Um, if you look at those texts, um, they are largely pro-kingship. And I mean that in two different ways. Firstly, in their complaint against kings, they are complaining that kings aren't doing their job. Right? They're not fulfilling those expectations of royal theology. Um, you know, are you king because you compete in cedars? You know, in Jeremiah, and then he turns to um, the ideal of the just king. And then, secondly, you know, again, um, we've we're past Easter, but if we go back to Christmas, think about what all of our Christmas carols are about. It's about coming kings. And all of those texts come from the prophets, uh, which after the loss of kingship, this tragic event, the the other side of the tragedy of 587-586, meant that it gave them an opportunity to promise the the restoration of kingship. Mm. And that's exactly what they did in the most idealistic, fulsome, theologically rich manner. Hmm. Um, and I and I think what's interesting, and this is where reading Bible in its in the long durée of when it was written and compiled, is that actually those promises didn't come to fruition. And I think it's partly that issue that really guides um, the the Bible stance on kingship. Um, that the prophets promised David uh, that he would come back, hmm. and he didn't come back. Hmm. Um, which creates a very profound theological, um, you know, point of contention, a cognitive dissonance that has to be resolved some way. Um, and I think the Bible attempts to resolve that in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to jump over this. I mean, I, I think this is an important uh, time period. Like you said, 587, 586, we, we talked, yeah. we've talked on the podcast before about sort of the, the trauma of of having this invading force come in and and destroy the temple, you know, certainly scatter the people into into exile. But we kind of jump over the fact that, like like Helen just mentioned, that they they killed the king, right? The king was executed, and was that the end of you know kingship in Israel effectively at that point? Is that, and, and then so what is that? How do we see, does the text, you know, do we see how the text is responding to that? Like you said, you see these prophets talking about. So what other ways do we know that the people were dealing with the trauma of losing of losing the kingship? I think we have, so I should probably mention at this point a, a great book um, by Ian Wilson, who's a friend of mine. He's professor of Old Testament in Canada. And, and his PhD, which he wrote with Ehud Ben-Svi, uh, is called Memories of Kingship mm. in Ancient Judah. Mm. And um, it, it's such a it's such a fine book. And even if you don't agree with all of the aspects of his argument, his basic position is that what we have in the Hebrew Bible is a purposely multivocal, open-ended discussion about kingship. Hmm. That 
can go one of two ways or can go any number of different ways. It can either go, either you can shut it down uh, or, or, or you can open it up. And um, that the way that our theologians in the post-exilic period dealt with this precise problem of the loss of monarchy mm. was to create um, multiple endings um, and multiple stories about how kingship came to be which again can be read in any number of different ways. Mm. There is an anti-monarchic um, strand in the Hebrew Bible, which is impossible to miss. Mm -hmm. There is also a story about kingship in the Hebrew Bible that gets us precisely to Matthew 1.1. Mm. Um, you know, and it's a question of which one or which yellow brick road mm. one is going to go down or perhaps, you know, where one switches or changes lanes or various things like that. But I will say, coming back to the question of exile and the fact that we even have this multivocal story in the first place is precisely because we did lose kingship and also precisely because kingship didn't come back. And so whereas they got the land back in the post-exilic period, they got their temple back, albeit a horrible, poor platonic <laughs> shadow of the once ideal and everybody wept, according to Ezra Nehemiah, they even got their god back. Um, uh, kind of in this new, you know, monotheistic form. <laughs> but what they didn't get is they didn't get kingship back. Mm. Um, and it's not until the Hasmonean period that we have political autonomy, which, again, I think is very important for this question, certainly as it leads up to the New Testament. But in, it means that kingship kind of takes the fall, because it's the one institution that you can kind of throw the exile on, um, because it doesn't come back. Uh, and so I think it takes a lot of the blame um, for what the exile was, why it happened, certainly, um, and and what the ramifications of it are. Um, but again, that said, um, the next time you are in Second Isaiah, read what it says about Cyrus. He's called the Messiah. Mm. He's called the servant. He's called my chosen one. Um, so you see all of that language come back because they're like, oh, he's coming. He's going he's gonna to fix it all. Mm. And of course, he, he didn't fix it all. <laughs> I really like this, uh, you know, the way you talked about the um, Hebrew Bible being a discussion of these things. And I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, because not just kingship, but so many other things. It is because people are always saying, you know, what's the Old Testament view or the biblical view on something? And you always have to say, well, some bits are like this, some bits are like that. But to see it as an ongoing discussion that sort of straddles the centuries and, and has been texts have been changed and worked over and redacted. I think that's that's a really useful way to think about, you know, the Hebrew Bible as a whole, actually, just an ongoing discussion. Absolutely. And, and, and I think what it I mean, I think what it really allows us to do is it it allows us to let the Hebrew Bible be as brilliant as it is. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, when when we when we resume it down to you know the Hebrew Bible says X about covenant or Hebrew Bible says X about God is it's none of it's true. Mm. You know, you just you end up having to ignore vast quantities of text. Um, <clears throat> and so you know if if we think of Hebrew Bible as an an anthology of some description. Um, I think that gives us more freedom to let it just be itself um, and, and to maintain and kind of hold with integrity those difficult subjects. And I, I you know, I think kingship is the most difficult subject of the Hebrew Bible mm. um, because it's just you see polar opposite ends of um, kind of theological discourse on what its value is. <clears throat> Either the king is the son of God 
Um, or he's the entire reason why Israel went into exile. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I want to, yeah, I want to bring up the, that that second view because it it seems like so much of the, of the prophets' time and and, and the, these prophets who are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, right? They're just yeah. railing against the king most of the time. So, yeah. how is it? Is that just a way of explaining, like you said, explaining? why this terrible thing happened to the people is it is it just a way of saying well it was the king who turned away from god and and so we have the prophets saying this or how, how do you yeah. how do you read those texts yeah that's, that's a great question dave so I, I could probably answer it in two different ways i mean on on some basic level you're absolutely right i mean what what are the prophets there for they're there to tell us why the exile happened right and to give us evidence that Israel and Judah were warned so that the exile isn't just the capricious punishment of, uh, or a punishment of a capricious, ineffectual God, right? Because that hmm. that is a, a perfectly legitimate explanation of, of what the exile is. And so the prophets are there to show us that everybody was warned, therefore justifying this, this catastrophic event. Um, and so, so yes, I do see them as kind of acting as warning mouthpieces. But I, I want to reiterate something I said earlier, which is to say, go and look at those texts when they are railing against kings. And it's not for being kings. It's for not being kings, mm. right? For not acting as kings ought to act. And in that sense, um, we have a tendency... I, I think because of our own kind of political modeling today, where prophets are expected to be anti-institutional, mm. you know, somehow against um, sovereign power or human so or human manifestations of it, that we think of prophets as kind of speaking truth to power, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and our Old Testament Hebrew Bible prophets are certainly speaking truth because they're the mouthpiece of God, but there's, they're telling power to return to their obligations to power. Mm. <laughs> right? And in that sense, it's, it's, it's a very, very traditional message that they have. Mm. They're saying, come back and be shepherds. You know, come back and be the, you know, the just king that you're supposed to. You, you have jobs and you aren't doing them. Mm. It's not saying, don't be kings. And I think that's important um, because we have a tendency really to turn these positions of, or the Hebrew Bible's positions on politics into somehow prefigurations of our own political problems. Mm. And we can talk about that later if you'd like. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think the prophets are really misinterpreted in this respect. There are, of course, a few exceptions. Some of my own work on Ezekiel, I spend a lot of time trying to say that the book of Ezekiel has nothing good to say about human kings at all. But virtually every other book is some sort of theme and variation and hope for a return to traditional royal theology. Mm. Um, and that's quite interesting to me. So what happens later then, after the exile, people come back, as you say, they build the temple, it's a yeah. bit of a pale shadow, but then the priests take over, is that yeah. right? Do the priests yeah. sort of slide in and, and take that role over, or how does that work? Yeah, so again, I, I, I think 
It depends on whether we're talking about text or whether we're talking about on the ground. <laughs> I like Reality. the ground. If we can, on the ground. If, yeah, if you want to stay on the ground. Minute, yeah. um, so so I, 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 think, I think priests did take over, but I think they took over um, not because this is some, you know, grab by, you know, um, the early, early proto-Jewish, um, let's kill the religion a la Julius Wellhausen, um, <clears throat> a priestly power grab. Um, I, I think it's more re- um, basic than that, is that there was no political autonomy. I mean, they returned and they were under the power of Persian, the Persian Empire. And so there was a Persian-appointed governor who was from Judah, right? Um, and at least the early iterations of that governor seemed to have some sort of Davidic descent. Um, but but the truth is that it's really hard to say that the Persian governor is the son of God when um, you're actually under the rule of Persia. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so just on a very practical level, I think kingship starts, uh, excuse me, I think priesthood starts to grow in in, in prominence and power by virtue of the fact that the temple was the single kind of iteration of um, Judahite or Yehudite, depending on whether we want to switch terms at this point, um, identity and and self-definition. That and the law, um, which again is is or Torah obedience, whatever that means. Um, but it's it's interesting. So I think it, I think it's absolutely the case that priests do start to take over, um, but not because of some kind of orchestrated power grab or some inevitable theological consequence. I just think that's just the realities of being governed by a, a foreign empire who's quite far away. Right? This is we're not talking Assyria here. We're talking Persia, which is you know another beyond the desert. <laughs> um, you know, so, so I so I think that is that's certainly that's certainly the case, and and you can see it in something like Chronicles. You know, people largely think that Chronicles is rewriting um, Samuel Kings, and there's a noticeable um, change in interests uh, to the kind of the the the, the minutia of priesthood. There are mm. 24 priestly families. Mm. Suddenly, Levites are everywhere, and so I think that is a real shift that took place um, by by virtue of the. Both the peace, the Pax Persica, right? To, you know, a good two hundred and fifty years of of peace um, before Alexander came knocking about, um, and, and just the reality of how one governs oneself w- without a, a native dynast. Hmm. And what happens then when the Hasmoneans come along? I know we start to run out of texts at this period, don't we? We've got uh, Maccabees and a tiny bit of Daniel, but but how are they? Are, are they really seen as a reinstatement of? monarchy or I know you're going to say it's complicated <laughs> it's complicated <laughs> I think it depends on who you're asking yeah, right? yeah. Um, you know if you look at their coins they definitely thought that they were reinstated in the monarchy yeah. um, I mean well, the way that I tend to think about the Husmanians um, I mean clearly the fact that they came to power um, caused a lot of internal debate um, there are huge discussions about, you know, whether there was ever a community at Qumran. But if there was, <laughs> you know, it seems that they separated themselves in reaction to um, 
in in reaction to the Hasmoneans and this blurring of different identities, um, a, a royal identity and a priestly identity, which because of the Pentateuch shouldn't happen because hmm. right? kings come from the tribe of Judah and priests come from the tribe of Aaron. Uh, incidentally, uh, another problem for Jesus, hence the epistle to the Hebrews, right? Mm. Um, so it's it's a it's a problem that continues on. Um, <clears throat> uh, so clearly, there not everybody welcomed the Hasmoneans with uh, joy and aplomb. Um, but what I will say is, what I think the Hasmoneans did is, I think they kind of reawakened some of these texts that I reckon had gone pretty dormant hmm. at that point. Um, if you look at what people are writing in, in the pre-Maccabean period, um, in the late Persian and early Hellenistic period, you know, they're engaging with subjects of philosophy. You know, think of Ecclesiastes, hmm. think of Job. Um, but I think what the Hasmoneans did is they allowed these texts that talk about the return of a king or these texts that speak of the king in semi-divine manner to <clears throat> to come out of hibernation um, and, and have a vibrancy again, which they simply hadn't at that point. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think that's very important for, again, debates when we start to get into the New Testament. You know, why is it that Jesus has to be the Christos? Um, you know, why is he the Messiah? Why isn't he something else? Mm. Because that is a royal term. Right? It's uh, through and through. Even it gets supplied to a number, you know, priests and prophets in a few texts. And I, I, if I'm charting out, you know, a sequence of events that got us to there, I, I, I always say that you know the Hasmonean period was that important first reign. You know, if you mm. if you think how a, um, a you know a, a grasslands will grow in the desert, you know they're just dormant until there's this first reign, and then they burst into life. And and that's how I understand the Hasmoneans. Even if we don't have hundreds of texts being written about them, we have a lot of texts being written against them, <laughs> and and that's also interesting to me. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So they kind of stir those ideas up, and and Herod the Great, I suppose. Yes. Also, you know, he's the king of the Jews. There's 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 people who think he has a kind of messiah complex too. So he's I guess drawing on all of these as well. Absolutely. And you know, and again, you know, the fact that you know, we have the Jewish revolts, you yeah, know, and yeah. the three Jewish revolts. I mean, clearly things are going on here. Um and you know, again, we don't have a literature about about Bar Hochba, but you know, nonetheless, you know, this is it's it's, it's a similar principle. Um, and I and I I don't know if you've had Matt Novenson on 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 the twice. podcast twice. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. So yeah, so I mean, you 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 know what he says about messianism, and 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 it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting on all num a number of different levels. I mean, I, if if he's right that it's essentially a word game, um, and I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, messianism isn't a movement; it's how various people try to explain their present using a set of texts. Mm. Um. But it's interesting to me that this <clears throat> scriptural move or this kind of scriptural play is, you can kind of chart it out in history, you know, and it has this <clears throat> concentration of 
interest in these periods, you know, coming to the end of the common era or the, the before the common era and the, and the, and, and the first couple of centuries of the common era. And so I'm with him 100% that this is, you know, it's largely due to this, the kind of the textual turn in Judaism. It's huge. Um, but nonetheless, I think that there are historical factors that put those texts on the table again um, in a way that they might not have been had it not been for the Hasmoneans or indeed Herod. Um, because of course the Romans were not ones just to, you know, kind of trifle with. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the subtitle of the New Testament. The Romans (laughs) weren't someone to trifle with. Well, okay. So we, 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 we talked a little about Messiah Christos. We, we talked about how that means the anointed one. So I'm going to, I'm going to segue. I'm going to let Helen take it from here, but what's, what is about to happen in, in, uh, in the UK? And does, so does the King, Get, does he actually get anointed when he's oh, in the coronation? Does he get yes. anointed? Okay. Drum roll for yes. <laughs> it, just in case anybody has missed it, King Charles the Third is going to be crowned on um, May the sixth. Six. Mm-hmm. The sixth, it's Saturday, May the sixth. Yeah. So I mean, it, all the pomp, all the circumstance, everybody, everybody who's got a uniform will be out that day <laughs> parading down the mall in uh, London. But there's some really interesting bits about the anointing and stuff that I'm hoping that Madhavi can tell us where where these are all coming from because they they are coming from the Hebrew Bible, aren't they? Absolutely. So again, I mean, (laughs) just remind our listeners that the oil that is going to anoint uh, Charles has come from the Holy Land. It has come all the way from Israel. Just Uh, now? Is this a new batch or is this an old batch that was used? I mean, is there kind of like, you know, a little pot or is it, does it get resent? Oh, it smells a little dusty. I I think it's a new pot, you know, it's, um, which which is very interesting, you know, Mm. and and again, who is going to do this? You know, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, Mm. this is a profoundly sacral moment Mm. that we're going to witness. And and even the fact that we're witnessing it is very interesting because if you look back, um, I promise I will come back to anointing, but if you look back, to um, when his mother um, yeah. was was um, enthroned, um, uh, uh, it, it was the first time it had been televised, and it's quite extraordinary. And they show everything except for when she's anointed, mm. right? Which is this moment of ontological change, mm. uh, and, and it will be. I I I will be sitting with. Um, profound uh, interest uh, <laughs> as I watch this ritual for many hours, no doubt, uh, and, whether, and whether we're going to be able to see that or not. Because mm. if we are, then something has really shifted in our culture. But we can come to that, back to that if we want to. But this idea of, of what um, what is anointing, okay, well, obviously, anointing is the putting on of oil, and to one extent or another, I mean, oil shmoil, right? You know, this is how people wash their hair in the ancient world, you know, it's it's just, or clean themselves. So, you know, you put some oil on, you take a shirt and you can clean off your skin. But I think what this idea of um, anointing with this, this holy oil, um, what makes somebody a Mashiach, an anointed one, um, is it's essentially, it, it, again, kind of turns somebody on, right? It, it allows them to perform a function, mm. Um, uh, going back to our discussion about divinity at the beginning, I, I think becoming the anointed is precisely that moment at which, uh, uh, you know, a you or a me, Dave, well, actually, you know, there were queens in ancient Israel, but a you or a me stopped being just a, a normal mundane individual mm. and um, 
went in this liminal space between divinity mm. and humanity. And that happens by virtue of being anointed. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I kind of said in jest, but I, I do think about it as kind of an ontological shift um, that changes the very ontology of the person who has then therefore been turned on to perform the function. Mm. Um, and in this instance, it is as um, son of God uh, with the kings of ancient Israel and Judah. Uh, in, indeed, um, also think of the baptismal moment mm. in the Jesus narratives. Um, it, it, it isn't oil, but um, it, having been baptized in the Jordan, here we have the um, announcement of sonship. Um, that is quoting Psalm 2, the, mm. one of the greatest royal psalms. Um, so so, so that, that is very much in play uh, and, and certainly, you know, certainly was in the history of um, European kingship and, and remains so in the UK. Um, the, the, the monarch in the UK remains the head of the church, mm. um, uh, uh, appoints all regises of professors of, of Hebrew and theology. You know, I, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, it, I, I, one could map it directly onto this kingship theology that mm. I was talking about. And of course, there are people who act in local regis. That's what the Archbishop of Canterbury is, but it is still the monarch who's at the head of the church um, and the head of the state uh, um, who appoints professors. And, you know, um, uh, and, and were I to become a UK citizen, um, which I've um and awed whether I want to spend the £1,000 to do so, you know, to whom it's would I, what, well, yeah, I know, uh, to whom would I swear loyalty? It would be to the monarch, you know, that, yeah. that, uh, which is very interesting. And so there's, you know, in the UK, it's fascinating. You know, I think we use it as a bit of a tourist discussion. Um, but again, the, the anchoring of monarchy in this country is uh, profoundly biblical. Wow. Um, and and, and wh why, why don't we see that as much or why don't we pay attention to it? Well, because of the rest of Europe and the United States fought a, a revolution against that mm. concept of kingship. Like that, um, the 18th century was a, a century spent um, uh, <clears throat> both theologically destroying that concept and 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 assassinating mm. um uh, uh, putting that person to death oh. and so if you think about the discourse in american politics or even elsewhere in france um my goodness the, um the the divine right of kings or anything remotely like that is has been um <coughs> carved out of the stone <laughs> um, it, it, in that sense it has been defaced from um, kind of public acknowledgement of, of where sovereignty is well hopefully people will watch it with new eyes and they'll be yeah. they'll be Watching out to see what happens at that moment with the oil. Yes, and, and indeed, on. like you know, look, look at who's involved and who's yeah. doing what. You yeah. know, and what you know, where are the where are the priests? You know, yeah, where yeah. where are the people of state? How many other monarchs are going to be there? You know, and and what are they doing? Uh, uh, you know, acting as witness. I mean, it's one big invitation, but again, the pageantry of it and. Again, just the language. They're going to say things about Charles, which will be like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, again, like, you know, what is he in charge of? And like, what is his ideal? And um, I mean, I, I just taught a class on kingship this last semester. And um, we're thinking about playing, you know, kingship bingo on the 6th of May, you know, in terms of, you know, how many aspects of hmm. Old Testament kingship can we see in this coronation? And, um, you know, I leave it to my students, whether they do that with a cup of tea or a can of beer. Something else, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Madhavi, thank you so much for coming on here. We we covered so much territory, but I think it 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 it, it uh, traced a very clear line, like you said, from these ancient traditions that we we read about in the in the Hebrew Bible, and all the way up to today when we have this king that's still carrying on some of these. Some of these rights, and uh, I, I we encourage people to tune in on on May sixth and check out if we can see that amazing anointment, anointing. And uh, <laughs> otherwise, um, you know, this has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine, and we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.